G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. My dad had a truck and he would collect rubbish and get paid by the job, by whoever. And he got a job removing rubble from a a house block so he could build a new house. And amongst the rubble I found a guitar in two pieces and I took it home and Errol died the neck back on the body but didn't get it straight. And I didn't have guitar strings, I put um, fishing line on it and I was mucking around with it. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. That's the song Reminiscing by the Little River Band, or LRB, one of the most successful Australian bands of all time. And we'll be doing some reminiscing ourselves today with the bass player of that classic song, George McArdle. In the late 1970s, at the peak of the group's international success, George left LRB to go to Bible school. We'll find out about that and a whole lot more as George shares his story with us today. He's chatting with Eric Scadabo in our Melbourne studios. George, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Eric. It's wonderful to be here. Glad to have you with us. And before we get started, I just want to say that growing up in the middle of the United States, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the Little River Band was a staple of AM, middle-of-the-road music back in the 70s. So basically, your mates and yourself provided some of the soundtrack of my childhood. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> yeah, I hear that all the time. And we uh, it's funny because we arrived, our very first concert in the U.S. was in Jacksonville, Florida. And it was like when we got off the airplane, there were crowds at the airport. Oh, wow. And then we'd go, like, to New York. And it was, who? <laughs> we did a, a Feast or famine. Yeah, that's right. And it was like that for a while until we became, as you said, well-known across the U.S. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to that point in your story. But first, let's go back to your childhood. What was life like growing up? Yeah, well, um, my dad was an unhappy man. He'd been in... Uh, in trouble with the unions for speaking out about something that didn't toe the party line and he became a persecuted man and mm. through that kind of ran away from that from job to job and uh, ended up an alcoholic and really quite fearful and paranoid and drank heavily to compensate and my, I lived in an unhappy home and uh, he was quite violent and I'd always know how drunk he was by how long it took him to get the key in the front door. Mm. That's how we knew. We'd be laying there dreading him coming in the front door. It was like that. And was he violent when he finally would get through Sometimes. the door? Sometimes. Mm. Sometimes he could be in a very happy mood, mm. you know, sharing us with gifts. Oh, yeah. Things. So yeah. you never knew what to expect. You never knew what to expect. But sometimes it would be on, mm. normally with him and mum. Mm. You know, I remember him. Ended up in the backyard in the middle of the night. Him and mum, he mm. pretty much dragged her out there. It was uh, not a lot of fun. Yeah, but I was going to say, what impact did that have on you growing up? That obviously would... More make- as an adult. Hmm. More as an adult. You second-guess yourself all the time. He's always screaming at you and telling you how bad you were. And, hmm. You know, and, and you translate that into... He was your authority figure, father figure. Mm-hmm. 
and you tend to so that they say you tend to view God the same way mm. and uh, it affects your decision making mm-hmm. you can't do that who do you think you are you know that sort of thing and and you second guess and don't follow things through mm-hmm. and unfortunately there were some other terrible incidents that happened to you in your childhood yeah like um well, even in primary school, being locked in a, a broom closet because it was, I've got a, a piece of A4 paper in front of me. The closet was not much bigger than that. Wow. Tiny, and just to store a couple of brooms. And she would lock me in there as a form of discipline in the totally dark. Wow. You know, as a little kid. Wow. So and this was a strict disciplinarian type school, is that? Yeah, yeah. And wow. then later on in, in secondary school, um, in front of the whole schoolyard, the whole student body being hit across the head as hard as this guy could. He swung his hand back as hard as he could and hit me across the head, across my ear. And then as an adult, as a musician, I could never wear headphones on both ears. And flying was a problem. And I got off an aeroplane in Chicago, went mm-hmm. to the doctor, and he said, well, you've had a ruptured eardrum. And I said, well, no, I haven't. He says, well, has anybody ever hit you across the ear with the palm of their hand? <laughs> Straight away, I remember this situation. Wow. And this was supposedly a type of discipline, but actually abuse. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. They just went yeah. too far. Yeah. And, you know, Things like that. So it was all because I was a troubled kid and, and got in a lot of trouble, more mm-hmm. so than the average kid, because of disturbed behavior. You know? mm-hmm. So yeah, it was all because of what was going on at home, wetting the bed till I was mm-hmm. 10 years of age and stuff like that, you know. So, obviously, you're painting a picture of a very troubled childhood, uh, confused for many ways. When did music come into the scene? Well, my dad had a truck, and he would collect rubbish and get paid by the job, by whoever. Mm -hmm. He was only partially employed, and he was struggling, you know. And he got a job removing rubble from a, a house block. So I could build a new house. And amongst the rubble, I found a guitar, an acoustic guitar in, in two pieces. And I took it home and Errol died of the neck back on the body, but didn't get it straight. <laughs> and I didn't have guitar strings. I put um, fishing line on it. Oh, wow. And I was mucking around with it. My uncle came. That's how it all started? Yeah, my uncle came around for a visit. And he says, why don't we go for a drive in the city? I said, yeah, great. So we went to Ludapano's in, I think it was in Elizabeth Street or Burke Street. Mm-hmm. And there was a little three-quarter size acoustic there. And he told them I was left-handed, so they restrung it for me. That was my first guitar. And he took me every Saturday. I wish he was still alive to hear this. He was such a fantastic guy. Mm. He took me every Saturday to guitar lessons. And I'd sit in amongst 20 or 30 kids. And there was a guy with an electric guitar up the front. And he would play melodies like Skip to Malou and... Twinkle, twinkle, little star. And we, mm-hmm. all of us would strum along. And none of us could play be- very well, but together mm-hmm. it sounded great. And we would play the, the chords mm-hmm. and he would play the melody mm-hmm. on his electric guitar. And I used to look forward to it. Yeah. It was wonderful. It wasn't like a lesson to me, you know. And uh, that was the start. And then I joined a school band and bought an electric guitar and a, an amp golden tone i was meeting i met a guy the other day who i sold it to him he still has it oh wow i didn't really care about seeing it again but it's <laughs> nice you know somebody has it somewhere it's still around yeah. here and uh I, I joined a band with three other guitar players and they said well you're the worst of the guitarists so you either switch 
to base or we will just get somebody else. So I oh, wow. <laughs> I went down Sydney Road in Brunswick. That's not really great for the ego. <laughs> yeah, well, it was such early days, I didn't really care. None of us were that good, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I went down at Sydney Road to a second-hand shop, and there was this uh, Fender copy in the window, mm-hmm. right-handed base. I'm left-handed. But I bought it and uh, switched the strings around. That was my first base. The knobs were up the wrong way, so my hand would keep turning the oh, volume yeah. down. Because you had to flip it over? <laughs> oh, wow. But that was my first bass, and straight away I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, and Daddy Cool with the top of the pops at the time. And I loved the bass on Eagle Rock. He was one of my teenage idols and heroes, and I loved the way he played. and Took to it straight away. Mm-hmm. Very happy to play the bass. Now, did this kind of help you kind of have an escape from the troubles of your childhood and your home? Absolutely. Yeah, it really did. And I look back and I see God in it all. Mm. You know, I was unemployed. I remember being unemployed, sitting in the backyard on a winter's morning. The sun was warm. The sun was mm. right there, you know, shining. I'm sitting there in a tracksuit on the concrete, leaning against the back of the house, thinking... What is this? What's life all about? You know, mm. my parents had split up. I was being raised by my mamas with four siblings. We'd moved in with my grandfather. My dad was scared of him. He wouldn't mm. come around and hassle us. My granddad was from Ireland. He was very gruff, but mm. a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. And his son, my uncle, mm. had the a heart. Got you started in music? He had a heart of gold. Mm. I got involved with cycling. I, I rode track and road raced mm-hmm. with the Brunswick Gamma Cycling Club. My uncle loved that. He loved sport. He was very sports-minded mm-hmm. when he was at school. He played cricket and football, and he loved sport, and he loved the cycling. He came down to the Brunswick Cycling Track and saw me race, and he was, he was <laughs> as hooked on it as me. Sounds like he kind of served as your surrogate father. He did, mm-hmm. and he would take me to the racing because I couldn't drive. He, he had a, a car with a... He, put a tow bar on it so we could hang the bikes on on the back. Mm-hmm. I remember winning my first race, and he was there at the finishing line out oh, of well. You know, It was terrific. He was a great guy. He was like a surrogate dad to me, mm. Uncle Pat. I just wish he was here mm. for me to honour him you know, like that. You know, And uh, we were living with him and my grandfather. But it was a bit of a sad house still. My sister was involved in drugs. Mm. It was not uncommon to come home and the lounge room would be full of cigarette smoke and she'd have a couple of drug addict friends sitting there. Mm. And um, my mum was not coping very well with all of that, you know. But bless her heart, she did her best, you know. So you're leaning against your house thinking, what's it all about? Yeah, lost. Lost. My dad was a man with troubles on his mind He tried to drown all his sorrows One beer at a time You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is chatting with George McArdle, who was the bass player with the Little River Band during the peak of their success during the 1970s. We just heard him share about his troubled childhood. Next, George will tell us what led him to becoming a member of LRB. All that and more when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. 
Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, George McArdle, who was the original bass player with the Little River Band, is sharing his story. As we heard before the break, George grew up in a dysfunctional family and seeds were planted in his life that would lead to troubles for him down the road. Next, George shares what led him to becoming a member of LRB. I was playing in a band that, uh, by this stage that was a professional band, but I, I wasn't a professional musician. I, that band played Friday and Saturday nights at Peter Poynton's in uh, Carlton. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good band. And uh, there were some session musicians playing in that band. So it was, And David Briggs from LRB was playing in the band. Mm-hmm. That's where we met. Mm-hmm. And when the guys... I'd, I'd been in a couple of other bands as well. I'd been over to Western Australia, to Perth, twice prior to that and playing in the nightclubs over there. But um, the guys from LRB came to Peter Poynton's to check him out, mm-hmm. not me. But uh, they saw me and heard me playing and and uh, triggered a bit of interest. So the two of us joined LRB together. Now, the Little River Band had already started... They'd been around for a couple of years. They had two albums that they'd recorded. I don't know whether they had overseas releases at that stage, but both of those albums were released overseas when we became an overseas uh, artist. You know, I think so. So they had some success in Australia. Oh, absolutely, but, but hadn't quite broken through to the yeah, that's extreme right. fame. Yeah, they uh, Glenn Wheatley marketed the the band wearing out shoe leather in the United States and got us um, got us a record deal mm-hmm. with um, Capitol Records in the US and got us uh, concerts. Mm-hmm. When we first went over there, he only had, I've heard him say this himself, he only had one confirmed booking. I don't think he told us. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and the rest just happened. Hmm. You know? So obviously they invited you to be a part of the group. Yeah. Yeah, I auditioned with them in a, a rehearsal studio. David and I both auditioned at the same time for in a rehearsal studio in South Melbourne. And uh, he rang Wheatley rang me about a month later. I had basically forgotten about it deliberately because I thought I can't. I'll be so disappointed if this strings on and I never hear from them again that I'll just put it out of my mm. mind. Sometimes you hope for something and mm-hmm. you realise it's, you know, you, your whole life is on hold waiting. Yeah, yeah. So you just forget it, deliberately forget yeah. about it. So I did. And lo and behold, one night I was sitting at my mum's house watching TV and the phone rang and my sister answered the phone and she says, it's Glenn Wheatley. And it was not uncommon in my family to play practical jokes like mm. that and I just didn't believe her. He said, oh, it's Glenn Wheatley. <laughs> And I said, oh, come on, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, when you picked up the phone. Oh. <laughs> she handed me the phone yeah, and he yeah. said, oh, it's Glenn Wheatley here, George. And I, I said to him, oh, come on, who is this? You know. <laughs> so he, he finally said, convinced you that he yes. was actually who. And he said, welcome aboard. Oh, wow. And I said, you're kidding me. You know, he said, no. Now, you really wanted to be a part of this group. Absolutely. Why was that? 
because as, as I said earlier, prior to that, I'd been sitting in the sun on the concrete in the backyard, patting my dog, thinking, what's all this about, you know? I couldn't see any mm. real future. I was, I was practice, practicing four to six hours a day. Mm. I was listening to all of the, the best bass players in the world, and, and there was no YouTube, mm, no yeah. internet. Yeah. So yeah. what you used to do, you'd have the vinyl record, and you'd just keep lifting the needle up and putting it back yep. on a yep. certain phrase and going over it and wrecking the, wrecking the album, <laughs> you know. But you would do that until you figured out what the guy was doing. And I was listening to great bass players, Jaco Pistorius and Stanley Clark mm. and Abraham Laboreal and Alfonso Johnson, all names that musicians would be familiar with mm. from my vintage, you know. But, um, and I was working out what they were doing like that. So you were a student of the bass. Absolutely. And I was spending hours every day practicing. Mm-hmm. So I was well and truly beyond ready for mm-hmm. LRB. Mm-hmm. It was, as a matter of fact, they were not a band that I would listen to. I was listening to people like Weather Report and Return of Forever with Chick Career and oh, more jazz fusion type oh, stuff, yeah. which is kind of more exciting bass yeah. playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I joined the band, they never. I was doing things that were common to me mm-hmm. in regard to the sort of people I was listening to, but those guys had never heard anybody play oh, that wow. way. So they're impressed. They were very impressed. You get the gig? I got the gig. And uh, a couple of weeks, maybe a month later, I was touring Europe with them. We toured uh, Europe with the Hollies, <laughs> who I was, you know, I loved. The Hollies were a wonderful band, great guys. I mean, um, the singer of the Hollies took Derek and myself out for lunch one day when we were in Los Angeles. Alan Clark, we caught up with them, with him, and we got to know Mm -hmm. some of them, you know. So it was a real thrill to meet some of these people, that childhood heroes, you know. Yeah, so is that when they kind of broke through into international fame at that point, in that period? Yeah, that first tour, when we arrived in the United States, we probably landed in L.A. Mm -hmm. Our first concert was in Jacksonville, Florida, where Mm -hmm. we were... just the local radio guy on one of the popular AM stations decided to play LRB. And uh, it was probably it's a long way there. Mm-hmm. And it was it became hugely popular. So we arrive in, in Jacksonville in Florida with people cheering at the airport. Yeah, yeah, as you did mention earlier. <laughs> yes. Wow. It was quite a surprise to yeah. me. Yeah. We're, we're, we're superstars in Jacksonville, Florida. And when we go somewhere else, we were unheard of and there'd be nobody <laughs> at the airport. We did a, a, a concert in Central Park in New York. Oh, well. We were unknown. You know? yeah. So it was just it just depended on um, where we were in the United States. But the momentum picked up and we became mm-hmm. – we ended up touring in our own right. Mm-hmm. We had bands like Foreigner as our support act. Oh, wow. You know, Cheap Trick. Yeah, um, yeah all these big bands. America. Right? Yeah. The Horse with No Name. Yeah, they, yeah. They supported us. Wow. Shows, you know. Yeah. So it just depended. I mean, I mean, you must have, I mean, here you are, just a guy from Melbourne and playing your bass around, and now all of a sudden these household names are supporting your group? Yeah. I mean, you I, had to pinch yourself to think it's real. Yeah, I remember auditioning for a band with some very good jazz fusion artists mm-hmm. just prior to my audition with LRB. And they gave me the songs they wanted me to learn, and I listened to them and I thought, oh, I can do better than that. Wow. So I changed 
the bass parts around so that they could hear what I could do. Uh-huh. And, of course, I didn't get the gig because they wanted me to play what was on the records. Oh, okay. You know. So they weren't looking for no. you to embellish it. No. Mm. But that worked to my advantage because when I auditioned for LRB, I remembered that. And uh, I play- when Graham Goble gave me the albums and he highlighted the tracks on the albums that he wanted me to learn, mm-hmm. I learnt them note for note what was on the recording. And Graham said to me, you know why you got the gig? I said, no. He said, because you, you learnt exactly what was on the recording. Mm. I was very impressed with that. I didn't tell him the reason why, but uh, that was the reason why. Otherwise, I could have made that mistake at mm, the time yeah, when it mattered yeah. most. So what's going on inside of you at this period where it's just skyrocketing? You're becoming internationally known as part of this group. Yeah, I had a lot of inner anxiety. Because most uh, people would think, this is Nirvana. I mean, you, you're you living the dream, what everybody, yeah. what every musician would want to have happen. Yeah. And uh, inside I'm thinking, uh, this is too good to be true. It won't last. Hmm. They'll realize that I'm not good enough. All of that. You had that insecurity. Oh, yeah, really insecure. And uh, that never happened. I went from strength to strength. What I would do is they would present a song to be on the next album. And I was so insecure, I made sure that I came up with a bass part that was so unusual and uh, so good that it really enhanced the song. I was not content to just play what everybody else would play. So... The first album I played on was Diamantina Cocktail. And uh, I remember Glenn Shorrick playing this new song that he had written, Help Is On Its Way. And the first time we heard it was backstage mm-hmm. in the band room at Melbourne University where all our guitars were set up and we were tuning up and having a bite to eat. And he got on, there was a piano sitting in the corner, a little upright piano. And there was an amp in there in the room Glenn sits down at the piano and starts playing the chords to help us on its way. He wanted us to hear it and singing. Why are you in so much hurry? Is it really? You know. Yeah. My bass was sitting, sitting there. I plugged it in and I played the bass that mm. I recorded on that song. The guys just loved it. And it was, it was different, you know. And... I would. I brought something different to those songs that they really loved, mm-hmm. and it wasn't long before all those insecurities started to leave. As I realised, I belonged in that band, and the guys loved what I was doing, and I became known as the bass player with LRB and a valued member of the band. And when I left, Beeb in his book, uh, just since I've been down here in Melbourne because I live mm-hmm. in Brisbane, mm-hmm. uh, I was staying with a mate of mine, and he had a copy of Beeb's book. A founding member of the band, mm. but B made the comment when I left. I was sorely missed. Mm. They they loved my playing. I was such an unusual. He said an unusual bass player that I was sorely missed when I did leave. And that was uh, how it ended up. I I was very insecure when I joined, but not when I left. I knew I'd made my mark, you know, and I was valued a valued member of the band. And he made that comment in his book as well.
That's the classic song Help Is On Its Way by the Little River Band. And the distinct bass line in that song was created by our guest today, George McArdle, who's sharing his story. And at this point, it sounds like nothing could be better for George. He's a well-respected musician in one of the most successful bands in the world. So why, at the height of all this fame and fortune, would he leave the group to go to Bible school. We'll find out next time as George shares more of his story. We'll end today with this verse from the Bible that'll provide a little bit of a hint. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Until next time, when we'll hear part two of George McArdle's story, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. My sister had become a Christian. She had been a heroin addict. Well, her and my brother took me to that church and I did the same thing and about a month later I got baptised in water. The pastor made a large mention of the fact that I was in LRB, so I was a bit of a celebrity in the church and I was quite embarrassed about that. So I went home and I looked up at the ceiling and I said to God that if you're there, and I don't believe that you are, but I'm just letting you know that I'm never going back. George McArdle overcame a troubled childhood to become the bass player for one of the most successful bands in the world, the Little River Band, or LRB. But at the peak of the group's success, he left the group to go to Bible school. We'll find out why as he shares more of his story next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.